we get to participate with you. You don't need us, but you choose us. You love us and pursue us. Thank you for the chances to have our perspective grown from beyond these walls, even beyond the region here to the ends of the earth. Make us that kind of people, that Acts 1-8 people, that we would be your witnesses, but that we would have the Holy Spirit empower us, fall upon us. Even this morning, we're asking of that, Lord. Holy Spirit, fall upon us. Illuminate your word to us. Convict our hearts where necessary, but also encourage us deeply with your love and pursuit of us. And we pray that for our, our new shoots, our young ones as they go, that they would see Jesus fully and come to love him above all else. By your grace and your mercy, we pray. Amen. Amen. Kids, you may go forth through fourth grade. Well, as I send them, I'm going to mention one thing. Craig, you can stay there or join me in this. You know, when things happen in our world, um, when, I should say when evil things happen in our world, there's a, you, always a wrestling of what, what, makes, what makes the welcome time in a church service? What events? What's the threshold? What's the line? Uh, whether it's through individuals or through governments. And, and I'm always under that tension of when, when to speak and when not to speak because to not speak is speaking. Silence speaks. And so often when I speak of tragic events or of evil that is in our world, I speak in such a way that uh, on that day, uh, everyone gathered would likely know exactly what I'm talking about and resonate. And yet if a recording of that was played uh, in the years ahead or the, even the months ahead, you might scratch your head and say, what was he referring to? Which is sadness in and of itself. And so to not speak over weeks, uh, if it comes to anything political, and we certainly don't strive to be uh, political, but to be balanced and to point people to Jesus, uh, it doesn't mean that we have a full endorsement of everything that happens in our country. Silence does speak. And so I'm aware that around our nation today, there's sadness and there's a rippling uh, through laws that have been passed. And we stand with the broader Alliance family and the broader evangelical family that celebrates life. And we are for the life that Jesus creates. And so we want to be people who stand upon that and proclaim uh, who God has always been, that ultimately nothing truly has changed. And so I kind of wrote, I, I wrote this, uh, evil continues, our world is a mess, we condemn mass murder and yet we allow it. Our hope is not though in government or world leaders. If it is, we'll live lives furious or despairing. The lives the laws of this land or the opinions of our leaders are not greater than God's word. We have one true authority, one true king, and one great hope. James 4, 7 and following says, Submit yourselves therefore to God. Resist the devil, he will flee from you. Draw near to God and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Be wretched and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves before the Lord, and He will exalt you. I also recognize that as much as we celebrate and champion life, and that is right to do, it is God's heart. He is Creator uh, from the mother's womb. I also recognize that in the world and the pain that we live in, that this touches lives and maybe touches some of you directly. And we also celebrate and triumph on God's compassion and grace and mercy and the adoptive nature of God's heart to all of us. So we rightly want to celebrate both and hold uh, intention. So if this issue specifically touches you, man, we have compassion and grace and love and would love to continue in that conversation and dialogue while we also proclaim the hope that is in Christ and in his word. So there's a few words on that. Craig, come and read from Acts chapter 20 and we'll, we'll turn our attention there. And as we often said, and we hold high the Word of God, in the midst of everything, as Ben has shared, this is our truth text, right? This is our source. So we're looking at chapter 20, verses 1 through 12 this morning, if you would turn there with me. After the uproar ceased, Paul sent for the disciples, and after encouraging them, he said farewell and departed for Macedonia. When he had gone through those regions and had given them much encouragement, he came to Greece. There he spent three months, and when a plot was made against him by the Jews, he was about to set sail for Syria. 
he decided to return through Macedonia. Sopater the Berean, son of Pyrrhus, accompanied him. And of the Thessalonians, Aristarchus and Secundus, and Gaius of Derby and Timothy, and the Asians, Tychicus and Trophimus, these went on ahead and were waiting for us at Troas. But we sailed away from Philippi after the days of unleavened bread, and in the five days we came to them at Troas, where we stayed for seven days. On the first day of the week, when we were gathered together to break bread, Paul talked with them, intending to depart on the next day, and he was prolonged his, and he prolonged his speech until midnight. Gosh, have we ever been in a sermon? No, anyways, there was many lamps in the upper room where we were gathered, and a young man named Eutychus sitting at the window sank into a deep sleep as Paul talked still longer. And being overcome by sleep, he fell down from the third story and was taken up dead. But Paul went down and bent over him, and taking him in his arms, said, Do not be alarmed, for his life is in him. And when Paul had gone up and had broken bread and eaten, he conversed with them a long while, until daybreak, and so departed. And they took the youth away alive, and were not a little comforted. And any preacher has to be encouraged greatly by this text. So Acts 19 is over. Paul has left Ephesus. So if you've been tracking along with our journey for the last 15 months or so, you would probably expect us to start our study in Ephesians, Paul's letter to the church in Ephesus, today. You're going to have to wait a few weeks. Here's why. At the end of chapter 20, Paul loops back around and calls for the Ephesian elders and speaks to them in in an incredible pastoral and powerful uh, address. Maybe maybe one of the most encouraging exhortations for church leaders and for elders that we have in Scripture. And because Paul speaks this to the Ephesian elders, ultimately uh, to all elders, but specifically in, in heart to this church that he had spent three years with, And that happened before he wrote his letter back to them. It felt right to finish Acts 20, to see that addressed to the church, and then enter into the study. Part of the uh, excitement to study Paul's letter to the Ephesians, not just for his content, but understanding the church. This church is is an incredible church, but also is a picture uh, that we see of the birth of the church the life of the church, we have Paul's writing it to them, preserved in Scripture, and then we ultimately see the death of this church when Jesus writes his own letter to them in Revelation chapter 2 and speaks of what they have lost. And we'll mention that even this morning, a lens that we'll look at this church through. So it's a very unique church to be able to see the the planting, the life, and ultimately the death, the full life cycle of this church and have so much from Paul through it. So I'm excited for that, but you'll have to wait just a few weeks. We'll see how how many based on how long-winded I get. So we continue the world's longest sermon series prologue, 15 months preparing for Ephesians, ironically by looking at one of the world's longest sermons, Knowing that I'm fighting through a cold and we'll see how my voice holds up this morning, I'm guessing this won't come to match Paul's sermon. If you saw the title, One Killer Sermon, uh, before you think uh, I'm prideful here, this is about Paul's sermon. And as much as I would love to preach more like Paul, uh, he's one of my heroes, of course, I fall short and that's a good thing for you. If I'm still preaching when the sun starts to set, please feel free to interrupt me if you're not already asleep or dead. So what was going on? Was Paul really that dull of a preacher? We know that's likely not the case. The Word of God, though, is living and active, and preachers throughout history have succeeded in making it seem dull and dead. But God can work miracles even through the dullest 
preachers or the dullest sermon, and so there's hope if we want to glean that from this passage. What might God want to do for us today? How might the Holy Spirit want to work and bring life through His Word and through the promises of God? Imagine listening to a four-hour sermon that begins at 8 p.m. after you've worked a full day and you're in an upper Mediterranean room filled with smoke. The word there for lamps is literally torches. So we have a little bit more grace maybe for Eutychus. And by the way, if you fall asleep uh, during sermons, you could, I guess, look to this text and say, see, it's okay. Uh, Even Eutychus fell asleep during Paul's sermon. But if you gleaned that, then I should also glean uh, that I should be preaching far longer than I am, and God will redeem and restore them both. I do love to see passages like this, though, that are mostly transitional of nature, but powerful. Uh, They're certainly getting us from one place to another, and there's always depth and richness to Scripture. So I love digging in and seeing beyond the surface gleanings, uh, which in some ways are humorous. And one of my other heroes, living Matt Chandler, uh, says, read the Bible slowly. It's fantastic. And we've seen so many things in Acts that are truly uh, remarkable, uh, eye-opening, and even astonishing. So digging into this passage beyond those surface gleanings, what are the, what's the depth to mine? What are the, and I guess if I'm mixing metaphors, where are the gems here to be mined out? If we use cross-references, then it was during these few months of Paul's that he wrote at least two letters that we have preserved in Scripture. Romans maybe and arguably the greatest letter ever written, and 1 Corinthians. And Luke doesn't even mention that Paul was at work writing the Bible in these days. He mentions something else. So that immediately makes you say, so what then is of greater importance to reference or to mention? Uh, Likely Luke was fully aware of those letters, and perhaps not the widespread nature of them yet at this point, or perhaps even the divinity of them. So Luke is showing us, and let's start with a broad to specific, he's showing us this broad movement of the gospel fulfilling Jesus' words in Acts 1-8, that you will be my witnesses when the Holy Spirit comes upon you. This was spoken to the believers in Jerusalem, and you will be witnesses of me in Jerusalem and in Judea, the surrounding region, to the Samaritans even, those that you've had this historical animosity against, the gospel will break down walls and even to the ends of the earth. So really that's the movement of Luke's letter in Acts to see the fulfillment of those words. The gospel is going truly to the ends of the earth. And by the end of the book or letter, Paul is in Rome preaching in Rome. Now, Paul had had in mind to get to Rome for a long time. It's shown up a few times, as we've seen in the text. This is his desire. Rome, truly the most powerful and influential city of the day, and really the gateway to all other cities. So that's where the letter will end in fulfillment to the gospel going forth. And yet, Paul will end up in Rome as a prisoner. Not quite what he had expected, but God still fulfills his word. This passage also reminds us of God's amazing work in the details, in the present. So is God doing a massive work even today across the world, across the nations, to the ends of the earth? Absolutely. And we should rightly celebrate and give thanks, as we did a bit this morning, hearing some of the testimonies of God's work to the ends of the earth. But is God also at work in a local church? in a few, in families, amongst individuals? Does he care? Does he love? Is he present? Absolutely. And so this passage also, as it shows us in some ways a transition of Paul's, it also gives us this snapshot, this vision of a local church. Am I on? Am I coming through? Am I off completely? Not completely. 
Is it these? I'm just going to keep going. Is that okay? I'm going to keep speaking on and on. <laughs> so this passage shows us the snapshot of this church, as I hinted at, that we've seen throughout Acts, that really every church that is planted becomes like a greenhouse environment where people are growing in the Lord, deep roots in, in community and in Jesus, bearing fruit and sharing with one another. And so that's why we've kind of captured Acts with that picture, greenhouse environments, and that's our desire and striving also Kind of the sermon series within the series is convictions. Now I've preached through kind of the primary convictions that we see and have drawn from every church that we've seen planted throughout Acts. And we as a church have 10 that all find their foundation in Acts as we are in the same movement in response to the same commission given by Jesus that we would continue to see the gospel go forward to the ends of the earth. So we draw out the same 10 convictions. And in this little church that we don't know much about, we never saw the details of how it was planted. Paul never mentioned it. He didn't write a letter to it that we know of. Well, likely he did because that was kind of his practice and habit to write letters to all the churches. Some he wrote to regions and had them passed along but we don't have that preserved. Perhaps no extraordinary miracles took place in this little church, and yet it is still growing, flourishing, and thriving as a greenhouse environment. Troas. You know, if it's okay to be a doorkeeper in the house of God, then it's a blessed thing as a church to be but a footnote in his story. And it seems like that was what Troas was, a footnote in the story, the bigger story of what God was doing. So it's led me to a prayer this week. Lord, make us, make Union Hill a footnote in your story for your glory. But let that footnote read, as I think it would have read for Troas, a church that loved Jesus deeply one another fully, and God's word completely, all of its years. So may that be true of us. If we rewind to Acts chapter 16, we see the beginning of this church. And it seems like but a footnote. Hear this, Acts 16. That's a few verses if you wanted to flip your Bible. It's probably only a couple pages back if you have your thumb in Acts 20. Paul and Silas and Timothy went through the region of Phrygia and Galatia, having been forbidden by the Holy Spirit to speak the word in Asia. And when they had come to Mysia, they attempted to go, to go into Bithynia, but the Spirit of Jesus did not allow them. So passing by Mysia, they went down to Troas. There's the city. And a vision appeared to Paul in the night. A man of Macedonia was standing there urging him and saying, come over to Macedonia and help us. And when Paul had seen the vision, immediately we sought to go into Macedonia, concluding that God had called us to preach the gospel to them. And from there, if you remember the story, the church at Philippi was planted. A renowned church, a remarkable church. And yet here we are looking at Troas, this little church but a footnote that Paul passed through. If they were known for anything, it was the place where Paul received the vision from God and then left them. And yet, although we're not told how long Paul and Silas and Timothy remained in Troas, we know it wasn't long, maybe a a mere days, but it was long enough for the church to be planted and for the same convictions and priorities and values that we see in every church in Acts to be instilled. And that's maybe the most remarkable thing. That this church is noteworthy for what we see in their practice all of these years later when Paul had only been with them for but a few days. If you only had a few days to influence and to instill priorities and values, what would they be? You wouldn't have time to get into the weeds. And so what we see in them is very... uh, 
instrumental and informative even to us today as we draw the same convictions. Two that I would highlight that are two of ours that I've already preached on a number of times. One, knowing and living God's Word is vital. This church had a hunger and a thirst for God's Word and for the teaching and preaching of God's Word just like we see in almost every other church that were shown in Acts. And number two, our core conviction, we need one another. Not only are we better together, but we actually are made for community because we have a a God who is in perfect community, a triune God, Father, Son, and Spirit in perfect community. We made in His image actually need community. We need one another. It's the way we've been wired. And so we see this church also loving and serving and caring for one another and committing to gather together every week on Sundays. This is the first time in Scripture, by the way, that we see the church gathering on Sundays. The Lord's Day, the day that Jesus was resurrected. Because prior to that, the gathering of God's people was always on the Sabbath, which was Saturday. And so Sunday was a work day. That didn't change for hundreds of years. Sunday was still a work day, so they would either gather Saturday evening after the sunset, and that was then the Lord's Day celebration, or more likely, they would gather Sunday evening after work. That's likely what was taking place here. The regular church gathering on Sunday was an evening service gathered around the table. And we see that. They broke bread. They probably shared a more extensive meal, like a typical potluck. But they then shared in the communion meal, reminded of what Jesus had done. The breaking of His body. The institution of the new covenant through the cup representing His blood. So this is what was happening in this church service that Paul is now entering into and giving testimony of all that God had been doing over these years. God's faithfulness to him, to the church, the testimonies and the miracles that he was proclaiming that maybe they'd heard some of, maybe a report had gotten to them, but now they're hearing it from Paul directly. There's two words used for discourse here in the passage. One is more for exegesis and expounding and preaching that happened in the second half of the service the first was really dialogue Paul was probably spending most of the time as it says on and on sharing what God had been doing but it was an interaction with God's people as they celebrated what God had done so we see these values and these priorities kind of rise above the rest A communion value, both with one another and around the Lord's table. A regular gathering. They would not give up meeting together, as some are in the habit of doing. The author of Hebrews would write, but they would meet together to stir one another on toward love and good deeds, to encourage one another all the more as they see the day approaching. We see them worshiping together. We see them loving God, one another, and His Word. It makes sense that this church, like every other modeled that as Paul modeled that in the way he lived. Everything he did was motivated by the love of Jesus. His love for the truth of God's word was inseparable from his love for people. And I want to press on that a moment. Sometimes we think of Paul just as this great theologian and strong preacher and the writer of Scripture and maybe even harsh and unmoving. But that's not at all the testimony of his life. Paul's love for God's Word and the truth of it was inseparable from, the love for, from his love for people, for the body, for the church. When he wrote in his letter to the Ephesians, we'll get there eventually, Deo Valente, Ephesians 4 verse 15, we see the two of these come together. He says, Speaking the truth... In love, we are to grow up in every way into Him who is the head, into Christ, from whom the whole body is joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped. When each part is working properly, it makes the whole body grow so that it builds itself up in love. Speak the truth. Proclaim it. Paul was evidently at work proclaiming God's Word and showing how Jesus is the fulfillment of all that was written. It's all about Jesus. And yet, 
His message is consistently love. Love for the body, love for one another, growing and building up in love. And as I hinted at earlier, sadly, this isn't always the case. We can love God's Word and the truth and lose our love for one another. And it's possible that we can also love people so much that we feel like I can't proclaim the full counsel of God's Word and so we become less committed to the truth of God's Word as if that were even possible. They should be inseparable as God, as God shows us through Paul. When Jesus wrote His letter, this is what I hinted at earlier, Revelation chapter 2, Jesus said, I have this against you, church of Ephesus, that you have abandoned the love you had at first. So remember where you've fallen from. Repent and do those works that you did at first. Because if not, I will come to you and I will remove your lampstand from its place unless you repent. The church of Ephesus is no more. This will be a significant lens that we look through as we study this church, humbled, I hope, at the potential that we could drift from love. That we could drift from the love of Jesus, the love of one another, or the love of His Word, or all of the above. What we're striving for is that we would be convicted by both the content of Paul's preaching and writing, but also by the conduct of his life. They are inseparable for Paul. I hope we're convinced that knowing and living God's Word is vital. One of our core convictions as a church and as a movement in the Alliance. Our truth text, as Pastor Craig reminded us, Hebrews 4.12 says the Word of God is living and it is active. It's not just words on a page. It's Holy Spirit inspired. Paul picks up on that theme in 2 Timothy 3.16 and 17 that all Scripture is breathed out by God and all Scripture is profitable. This is why we drill into these kinds of maybe less renowned or obscure-like passages, because all Scripture is profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness, that everyone would be complete and equipped in every good work. Peter would pick up on this theme. He started his, his letter, his first letter, First Peter 1. His divine power has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of Him who called us to His own glory and excellence, by which He has granted to us His very great and precious promises, so that through them you may become partakers of the divine nature. Through the promises of God, through the Word of God, we become partakers of the divine nature. That God's Word, His Scripture, has all that we need for life and godliness. As I've said often, it doesn't have all that we want. There's so many things that we want to know more about. Scripture doesn't give us all that we want. It gives us all that we need for life and godliness and becomes our highest authority. The psalm writers wrote on this theme of God's Word of the law. God's, the Word of God and the law of God were often indistinguishable, though we might separate them as the giving of the law and the Pentateuch or the, even the Ten Commandments specifically. But the way the psalmist wrote of the law of the Lord was every word that came from the mouth of God. Every word that was spoken by one of his prophets. This was law. It was, it was gospel. They might not say it that way, but that might be the way we would say it. So Psalm 1, the very first psalm begins this way. Blessed is the man whose delight is in the law of the Lord. The word of the Lord. On his law he meditates day and night. For he is like a tree planted by streams of water that yields its fruit in its season and its leaf does not wither and all that he does he prospers. There's some of that growing and planted and roots imagery again that we see in Scripture. Psalm 19, verse 7 and following. The law, the word of the Lord is perfect. Hear the, hear the, hear the power of God's word through the psalmist. The law of the Lord is perfect, reviving the soul. Connect those dots. I'll foreshadow to what happens in this passage and then to us. Anything that needs to be revived in you, anything that's asleep that needs to be awoken, anything that's dead that needs to be revivified, the Word of God revives the soul. 
The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. You ever feel like you just don't know? You struggle, you look, you're like, I don't know. The word of the Lord makes wise the simple. The precepts of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. The commandment of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes. And that's something that could be meditated on and we could dwell on. I could say, how's your time in the word? Oftentimes, I think for many of us, a new year comes and January 1st and maybe a new Bible reading plan starts. I'm going to read through the Bible this year. It's going to be the year. Or maybe, I mean, you could search Google. I won't do it for you. Um, Actually, I tried. I said, Google, find me Bible reading plans. And my assistant said, I'm sorry, I can't help you with that. No surprise. But there's numerous Bible reading plans, whether chronological or whether you get through in a year or two or three. I've been following along with the Moravian text. I speak highly uh, of that Bible reading plan. What I like about it is there's about two million believers around the globe, most beyond the U.S., that are reading according to this plan. And so here in the Pacific time zone, by the time I crack my Bible, even if it is at 5.30 uh, most mornings, I recognize that two million Believers have already read this text that this day. I'm not the first one up. I don't know. I, I get encouraged. I sometimes get goosebumps uh, thinking about that. That God's bride, the church, has been meditating on the same word. And so I'm encouraged. And I, maybe you would be too to follow along with the Moravian text. Do a quick search. You'd find that that text gets you through the Bible in two years, except every year you read through the Psalms. So every day you're somewhere in the Old Testament, somewhere in the New, and also in the Psalms. So there's some maybe bite-sized pieces along the way. Instead of just reading, no matter what, what Bible reading plan, and if you're not disciplined in some form of reading, it's often, it doesn't become habitual. And habits are good things, but not if, hear me, if it's just a check the box And maybe some of your Bible reading plans even have those check boxes. Good, check that box. And I like to see boxes checked. I'm that kind of person. So little, you know, just check, check, check day by day. I don't want to miss a day when you're actually not receiving anything from God's word. I wouldn't discourage you from being in God's word. I think he speaks through that. But go with an intent and an attitude that says, Lord, I'm more interested in hearing your voice, of having my soul revived by your word, of having my eyes and heart open to what you would speak to me today than I am about checking that box. And it would probably be a good exercise for some of you to get a few verses in. And if God speaks, I would say if something kind of jumps off the page and it's like, that's for me now. Or just something that's interesting. Like, I don't know if I've... I love the imagery. There, we're, we're, down, we're at three bars now. Do you think that Paul had this problem in Troas in the, <laughs> in the upper room? I mean, how many times do you think he changed his batteries during that sermon? <laughs> Thank you, Lord. Maybe a few other things need to die before we are done this morning. So when you go to God's word and you read, you're asking God to speak to you and it would be far more fruitful and life-giving to stop two verses into that daily reading and say, that's what I needed to hear, to meditate on that word, even to put it to memory that throughout the day you could recite it in some form, don't get hung up on the word for word, but in the form of the truth of God's word that you would meditate on it and apply it to life. That's more life-giving and enriching and life-changing than having every day of 2019 with its little box checked. How's your time in the Word? Is knowing and living God's Word vital to life? May the Word of God dwell in us richly, Paul said in Colossians 3.16. 
at last week as we were tracing the fruit to the root, and if you weren't here, then either go back and listen or don't, but we're tracing the fruit to the root, and we often need to ask questions of, what am I believing? If there's fruit in our life that we know isn't of the Lord, and we don't want there, we ask the question, so what am I believing about myself and about God? And then we ask, but who is God? What does the scripture actually say about God that is in contrast to what I'm believing? Because I'm believing lies or falsehoods, things that aren't true about God. And usually when we get stuck, we struggle. Ah, I don't know what God said. I don't know what his word. I know it's there, but I don't. It's not in me. We're not ready to produce the answer of God's word. And so we need to dwell on it and have it within us. The enemy, Jesus says the enemy loves to take the word of God like a seed and rob it, steal it away. So even when we, we know the word is there, if it's not growing in us, that could easily be stolen away in times of conflict or temptation. When Jesus was tempted in the desert, he was tempted in every way, just as we are, Scripture says. He was tempted by the enemy in the desert. How did he stand firm? How did he win that temptation? By proclaiming the word of God to every lie the enemy was speaking. Knowing and living God's word is vital. Number two, may we be also convicted by the conduct of Paul's life, not just the content of his word, but the conduct. They are inseparable. We need one another. God, grow in us love and compassion for one another. I remember my youth pastor saying uh, to us as counselors when we were just also young men and women seeking to counsel other young men and women, but God's grace, I suppose. He said, kids, these kids won't know, won't care how much you know until they know how much you care. And I looked that up. I think it's been attributed to either Teddy Roosevelt or John Maxwell or others. So maybe it's just a truism, even if it's not a Bible verse. But Paul lived his life that way. He, he modeled a compassion and a mercy and a grace with people that, that created probably the foundation and the soil to receive his exhortation, his admonition. Paul certainly kept in touch with this church. We have to believe that like he did with all of these churches when his travel plans are changed here because of a threat on his life. So he's trying to get to Jerusalem, I think, to celebrate a Passover meal. So there's a, time, a timeline that he's on. And then he finds out apparently that there's some malicious intent from others who are going to be on the same ship with him. And so he changes his plans. He leaves the city. And the first thing he does is, I'm going to go visit Troas. And I wonder if it was, I never got to spend enough time with this church, and yet I've heard from them how they're growing, and I can't wait to be with them again and to share with them. So he goes to Troas, and he shares into the wee hours of the morning all that God has been doing. Paul had probably learned from Peter. Acts 2 verse 40, with many other words he bore witness and continued to exhort them. I have that now, thankfully, on a plaque in my office. So there's a life verse. So if you ever think your pastor is long-winded, just be reminded that he's not biblical enough. We're not going hours upon hours. Where do we see Paul's heart beyond just his desire to be with the church? In this short passage, three times, Luke says he encouraged the believers Verse 1, after the uproar ceased, that's what was happening in Ephesus, Paul sent for the disciples and encouraged them. And then he said farewell. Verse 2, when he had gone through the regions, he had given much encouragement to the believers, and then he came to Greece. And then verse 11, after Eutychus was raised, he conversed with them a long while until daybreak and then departed. And they took the youth away alive and were not a little comforted. That's an interesting way to phrase it. But it's the same word there, encourage, the same root. Actually, you might recognize the root. It's parakaleo. When Jesus said, I will send you another counselor in, in John, I will send you another comforter, paraclete was the noun. Paul is parakaleoin, the church. 
He was bringing counsel with comfort. Those are both good translations for that word, and I think they are inseparable for the work of the Holy Spirit. Counsel through comfort. And Paul is doing the very same thing for the church. He is greatly encouraging through counsel and through comfort. He loves these believers and they love him deeply. That's the ministry that he had wherever he went. When he speaks to the Ephesian elders at the end of chapter 20, he'll say, for three years I admonished you, I exhorted you, but I did so with tears. That was his life on display for them. In 2 Corinthians chapter 10, he said, I, Paul, entreat myself by the meekness and gentleness of Christ, I who am humble when face to face with you, but bold toward you with, when I'm away. So he would, he's admitting that he writes in a way that is strong and to the point and bold, but he's reminding them as they're here, and this is chapter 10, that was a pretty strong, harsh letter if you haven't re- read through the Corinthian letters, and he's reminding them who he was. Remember my heart. Remember when I am with you. Because you need to hear this, but hear my heart as well. So that when I am with you, when I am present again with you, I will not have to show the same kind of boldness. Because you'll hear the word and you'll respond to it. Interesting, when he spoke to the Galatian church, he gave testimony that the church in, in Galatia would have torn out their eyes, pretty harsh image visual there, pun intended, and given their eyes to him, which is why some, some scholars have believed that was actually Paul's thorn in the flesh. He had something, some problem with his eyesight that he had prayed to the Lord to heal because he's saying here that the Galatians knew that and would have, if they could have given him their eyes, they would have. And whether he was referring to his own eyesight or just to the depth of the love relationship that the churches in Galatia had with Paul, it's enlightening and insightful to us to be reminded of Paul's ministry when often we can read Paul, we can hear him, especially the stuff that is hard to understand or that we don't like. Right? Even Peter said, Paul writes things that are hard to understand. That's Peter. And sometimes we can read that and put an image together of Paul that is not accurate according to the Scriptures. That when Paul was with the churches, they loved him deeply. And he was there humbly, in mercy, and with great compassion for the church, often weeping with them. And I think he would say, if I could have torn out my heart and given it to you, I would. Because later he wrote to the Philippian church, to, to die is my gain. To live, though, is Christ. So I will go on living for your benefit and for your good. We need to be convicted by the heart of Paul and the compassion of Paul as we are also convicted by the content and even the strength of his message and of the word that he proclaimed. But I want us to see that the two are ultimately inseparable. Scripture teaches the love for God's word and the love for people are inseparable. They cannot be in conflict. And when they are, it doesn't make sense to the heart of God. The Apostle John would pick up on this in a strong way. 1 John chapter 4, verse 20. If anyone says, I love God, and yet hates his brother, he's a liar. For he who does not love his brother, whom he has seen, cannot love God, whom he has not seen. And this commandment we have from him, whoever loves God must also Love his brother. They're inseparable. And it also tells us and shows us why. Not just we must. That's, I guess that's what we have to do. But why would we love like that? And why can we love others like that? Because of the verse that I left off. Verse 19. 1 John 4. We love because he first loved us. That's our motivation. That's Paul's. Because of the incredible, never stopping, never giving up, always and forever, unbreaking love of God, we can love others in the same way. And we know that love is possible and it is true because Jesus came. Because God so loved that He sent Jesus. That Jesus lived the life that we should have lived, trusting and relying on the Holy Spirit. And on the truth of God's word. And some, some scholars believe that Jesus primarily took 30 years because he himself was studying and learning scripture 
under the instruction of the Holy Spirit, this will probably stretch many of us, because, well, just like the hypostatic union does, the fullness of God and the fullness of man. But it's certainly an interesting thought, as if Jesus was at two reciting the whole scriptures when he couldn't even speak. Were they in him? Did they need to be drawn out? Or did he need to learn and grow to know God's word and memorize it with a human mind? Interesting thought. Regardless, Jesus lives the life we were meant to live. He ultimately dies the death that we were meant to die for our own sin. But in our place, He gives life instead of death. The center of the Gospel, life in place of death, the center of the reminder of the table, when we come to the table and we receive, we are recognizing Jesus' body broken, His blood shed, that we might have life. It is the center of the gospel and the source of our greatest comfort and encouragement. And it's exactly what happened in Troas that night. I wonder if God saw this church and if there was a letter that Jesus had written to this church, if it would have sounded something like, you are faithful, you are good, you love one another, you love the word, but you are already in routine. You are already in just religious action, even day by day as you come together. I don't know, but I know that word could be written to many of us or to many churches today. And perhaps God in His sovereignty either allowed or orchestrated the very picture of life being given to a dead man right in their midst. This didn't happen often. In fact, only one other time do we see an apostle raise someone from the dead. And we saw it in Peter. This was a supernatural, kind of very rare, even in Acts context, only time we see Paul do this. By the way, many scholars have said, the man must not have been dead. He must have just been unconscious, which I think is so ironic. One, who was writing this account and who was actually there in that room, Luke, a doctor, probably the first two Eutychus, man is dead. Two, how could we not believe this when, when, if we believe in the resurrection of Jesus? Nonetheless, Eutychus is raised. He's given life again. The very center of the gospel is on display. And maybe Eutychus wasn't the only one nodding off, but just happened to be a, a deadly nap. Imagine the adrenaline that is now flowing through this church. And maybe Paul was about to wrap it up. Listen, it's, it's midnight. My battery has failed three times. It's time to tie this thing up and to land it down. I see you. I see your faces. By the way, the pastor sees just about everything. Be encouraged. He still loves you and shows grace and compassion. and has been there too. But now, the, uh, now that this has happened with Eutychus... There's adrenaline pumping. They come back together for communion again. I love that. They already had communion. They already shared a meal and had a communion. Now they're probably hungry, right? That's one, but they share communion again. Imagine the power of that moment as they came to that meal, as Eutychus was there. Life instead of death. It had a whole new meaning in that moment. And in my preparation, I'm like, what would it, what would it take to have a glimpse of that? If that's the only path, then Lord, no, I don't want that. But if there's another path, Lord, to have a glimpse of the power, yet again, of this meal, it's not just a religious activity that we do every Sunday. By the way, we're encouraged by the church at Troas who is celebrating communion every Sunday. We're not ever prescribed that in Scripture, but we're encouraged because I know I need and long for that reminder. And do you? And let it be more than a reminder, but power. Power in life to our, what is even dead within us. As I asked earlier, what must die in order that we would have new life? That's the center of the gospel. And that's how I'd want us to end this morning. Proclaiming the words of Jesus first and then of Paul. Jesus said in John eleven twenty five, 25, he spoke this to Martha, but receive it to you as if he's speaking to you and to us. I am the resurrection and the life, he said. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. So do you believe? 
And she said, yes, Lord, I believe that you are the Christ, the Son of God, who is coming into this world. Would that be our testimony as we come to the table this morning? Jesus, you are the resurrection and the life. And we believe you are the Christ, the Son of God, who is coming into the world. And Paul's words, first in Ephesians, then in Galatians. In Ephesians, I was so reminded of this passage, which we made kind of the center text of the men's growth group last year. Ephesians 5.14, Awake, O sleeper, and arise from the dead, and Christ will shine on you. And I never made the connection before. I wonder if Paul had in mind Troas when he wrote those words. But we receive it as what must awaken in us what is dead or dormant. What is a malaise within us that must be awoken? Awake, O sleeper, and arise from the dead, and Christ will shine on you. What must die for us to become awake and alert to the spiritual moments or opportunities in our life? I heard one preacher, the one, that, one of the few that I was to, found that preached on this text, and he, he drew out an interesting um, parallel or exhortation that so we shouldn't miss church the point of it i mean don't miss church because you never know what could happen i just wonder how he was feeling about attendance in his (laughs) church i could make the conclusion also if you want to look at eutychus's perspective and say don't go to church that'll suck the life right out of you It's probably somewhere in between. By the way, Eutychus' name means fortunate or lucky. I thought maybe I looked up some, some names. I thought Ian. Maybe he changed his name to Ian. The Lord is merciful. At least when you fall asleep, it's not written in the Bible for everyone for 2,000 years to read about. Okay, Paul's final exhortation. And I'll invite the team up to respond to this. Galatians 2, verse 20. I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God, who loved me and gave himself for me. Let's respond with that word dwelling in us. As we come to the table, let's pray these prayers. Jesus, you are the resurrection and the life. We believe. You have given your life in order that we might live. Lord, please take our unbelief and take our sin, our malaise, and let it die. Renew and revive our heart and our soul with your word, with your promises, and with your very person present in the Holy Spirit with us right now. Grow our love, Lord, for you, for your word, for one another, for your church. Amen.